Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the back half of the New Statesman's Culture Podcast with me, Tom. And me, Kate. And uh, Kate, I just want to ask you about this briefly because you've just come in from a little assignment, haven't you? Mm, I've been trying to penetrate the Fort Knox that is the Hamilton press team for the last, like, feels like 10 years. But when we went to see it in February, I think we spoke about the fact that the person playing Aaron Burr, who is obviously the anti-hero, fantastic yes. part was the one that really stood out to me from the from the cast that yeah. night and I went home and I like flicked through the program who is this man and I thought it wasn't that man and it was the understudy yeah. so I thought wow I want to find out more about the life of an understudy so I finally went to see him this morning his name is Sifiso Mazabuko a South African actor and I discovered today that he is not only the understudy for Aaron Burr but also for Hamilton himself and Lafayette so when he took this role on, they said to him, uh, there might be a couple of other parts as well. And then he found out they were, they were Hamilton Lafayette. <laughs> so I was just talking to him about the, the, the sheer mental feat, really, of yeah. learning three parts. He's been on 30 times now as Burr, but he's never been on as Hamilton. And he was fascinating. He was telling me that the way that he learned the three roles was by colour coding them in his mind. So he associated uh, the colour green, I think, with with Hamilton orange with Burr and Lafayette was a kind of a sort of purple color. And he, he sort of blocked himself on stage in his mind with these colors. And also he said that when understudies learn their parts, they go to rehearsals. They don't obviously go on stage. They sit there in the audience watching the rehearsal. And then they get up and they sort of mirror the movements of the actors on stage at the back of the auditorium. So at any one time. So it's like this odd shadow, a shadowing shadow play, play going on. Wow. Going on near the fire exits yeah. and at the back of the chairs. And it was just it was it was really interesting because the it's the the combination of the mental agility that you must have to do those three different roles in your head and also not being able to go on and do them. Yeah. So this this the juxtaposition of the tension of the yeah. fact that you're not on stage every night versus the fact that you can be um, and that you can pull that out your um, sleeve. And he was so assured and so compelling that I couldn't, you know, of course, I mean, un understudies, they must hire really good actors to be understudies. It makes sense. They're not going to be like the C team. They're going yeah. to be really good. But when we saw him, he was just, he was, as I say, so assured that I couldn't quite believe it was... It was the understudy. I mean, he's only got to notch up, you know, he only has to learn a couple of the others before he could 
almost pretty much do a one man he could do the one, one man, man show, show. <laughs> a one man review yeah. going around in a van and i asked him whether he ever actually um has decided you know tried to act out the songs that take place between burr and hamilton just for larks like in a mirror or switching around cartoon style and playing both parts and he says that he does one in his head and mm. says the other one out loud and that's the way he does it mm. So, um, yeah, mm, I would say go and see him, but there's no way of knowing when he'll be on. Just go every night and then maybe one of those nights. Getting into Hamilton in itself is, is, is quite an achievement. Where, yeah. who, who you see is, I think. Even getting to stage door to was quite an achievement. So people radioing ahead and yeah. you know, sort of, Kate is here. <laughs> okay, okay. I won't try again. We spent yesterday in a, a lovely cinematic double bill watching Wonderstruck, which is Todd Haynes's new film, and A Quiet Place, which is a new horror film directed by and starring John Krasinski. So we're going to talk about that in just a moment. And we will also have our soon-to-be-revealed Nonniversary, which is a, it's a good one this week. It is. I've spent a valuable six minutes on YouTube uh, <laughs> revising for it just before we came down. Uh, so stay tuned. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. So we drew a, a not-so-tenuous link between two movies for our movie marathon yesterday for A Quiet Place and Wonderstruck. The theme of deafness, hearing, yeah. silence, and uh, both these films kind of united in um, uh, one of the lead actresses, Millicent Simmons, who is a 14, 15-year-old girl from Utah who lost her hearing at the age of 12 from a medication overdose and um, has been cast in both these films and plots her own kind of unique path through them. 
Um, and it's like basically Wonderstruck and Quiet Place, two things you associate with noise, horror and New York City, and noise is the thing that is removed from them. Mm. So you read the book that Wonderstruck was based on. I haven't read the book, actually. I've read, um, I, I read another, another book by um, Brian Selznick, uh, The Invention of Hugo Cabret, although um, red is a slightly is the wrong word for it really because uh, the invention of Hugo Cabret is a is a wordless it's a wordless graphic novel effectively so it's it's just pure pictures all the way through Brian Selznick is an amazing artist um and he does these very detailed um kind of crosshatched line um pencil drawings um and the invention of Hugo Cabret was uh, was picked up and and turned into a film by Martin Scorsese it's a story Hugo right yeah, what's yeah. like what's No, I was it called it? Hugo? The film was Hugo. The, the film was it just called Hugo? Yeah, I think okay, so. yeah, yeah. They just decided that there were too, just too people, many words for it's people. It's too complicated. To, what? Invent cabaret? <laughs> what? what do you mean? Cabaret? <laughs> um yeah, the, yeah, you're you're right, Hugo, which was kind of rendered in this um sort of really richly kind of semi-animated 3D um 1930s Paris for the film. Um and this book, um, Wonderstruck, uh, is is illustrated as well, but it's also it also has text. It's a slightly older, it's kind of young adult novel, um, and this has been picked up by by Todd Haynes um, and and turned into a movie. It is a split narrative, so it's uh, half set in 1977, um, begins in in 1977 in um, Minnesota, is mm. it? Yeah. Um, and then the other the other part of the film is 1927, beginning in New Jersey, and the, and really the the plot sh- moves those two narratives together. The the 1977 narrative uh, has a young boy Ben played by Oakes Fegley, um, uh, whose mother has been killed in a car crash, is being raised by his aunt. This is something that a sort of continuum in Brian Selznick's work Hugo Cabret is an is an orphan as well uh and the 1927 narrative has Millicent Simmons who, who you just described this young deaf girl playing a deaf girl growing up in New Jersey with a with a very strict father who looks like a sort of angry T.S. Eliot he's kind of got these he's sort of amazing looking he's got these uh, thick um black uh, circular spectacles and and slick back hair um kind of Almost, you know, fashion that you see occasionally in Dalston now. Um, <laughs> the Chap Olympics. Yeah, the Chap Olympics. <laughs> with very amazingly, every every time the film cuts to its, uh, its black and white silent movie mm. incarnation with Millicent in it, uh, it's kind of beautiful because all the actions are so exaggerated. Yes. So there is kind of a, a story of silent movies within the silent movie because she's chasing the, uh, sort of a, a famous uh, matinee actress that she that she loves and wants to find. Um, but it, it's even like the, the film itself is shot in this kind of slightly comical fashion. Um, so, I mean, I for me, I just, I thought it was um, a beautiful idea taking two deaf kids in New York City I mean, there's something very uncinematic about that, in a sense, isn't there? As I say, a place of noise and and chaos, and just looking at the, the the shock, the sensory shock, but the lack of sound surrounding two kids trying to navigate their way through Manhattan. Yeah. So just to just to fill in, the end of that was going to be that um, the Ben is uh, he's a hearing kid, but he has an accident and is struck deaf. Um, so 
um, that's the thing that connects them. And they're both they're both sent to they, they both end up in New York City trying to pursue elusive characters. And um, Ben's looking for his father, and um, Millicent Simmons, who plays uh, her character, is called Rose. She's looking for her mother. But yeah, as you said, one of the things I loved about this film is that the 1927 part has this lovely uh, silent movie feel to it. I, I mean, you do see Rose sits down and watches a silent movie partway through it. And the kind of silent movie soundtrack of um, piano, like dramatic piano rolls and stabs and things start to accentuate the the world in which she's living in. So, you know, when, when her father slams his fist down on the table, you get that brilliant kind of piano piano stab. And in both narratives as well, I think another thing I, I think that Todd Haynes does really well is um, just show you things from a child's point of view. I loved all the kind of, the crowd scenes where you're getting things at kind of um, waist level. So in the twenties, you're getting lots of like stockings and and seas of hats. Um, <laughs> and in the seventies, you're getting loads of bare torsos and amazing and jeans, amazing tight <laughs> jeans. I say halfway through this, I was kind of wondering, I, um, you know, everyone in the seventies stands in a really bizarre way. But you pointed out that it's just because their jeans are so tight. They're all sort of they, leaning they lean on, on cars, cars yeah. and, and they play in like fire hydrants. Yeah. And it is, um, I just thought it was really enchanting. It's it's really slow and really odd and it has its flaws, which we will come to, but it feels, it is dreamlike. And I was trying to think about what I felt about it today. And it is a bit like a thing that you watched half awake or slightly stoned or that you dreamt because even though he doesn't have much in the way of um, dialogue to play with, there is a lot of sound in a funny kind of way. Whenever the little boy Ben steps out onto the street, you get this amazing like whacka whacka funk bass. And it is it is saying this is 1977, mm. but it's doing it in a way that is um, artistic rather than just trying to kind of set the scene or something mm. like that. It becomes the whole point, like that bass and those jeans become the whole mm. point of that scene because he's got no one to talk to, he's lost his hearing, you know, it's it's about a feeling. It creates amazing feelings, but it's very hard to kind of pin down exactly whether or not it works as a piece of cinema. Mm. I, I think you're right. The sound is really effective. The visuals are really effective. It moves between the the two narratives have their own sort of soundscapes. And in in Ben's sound world, what you get is you get all the kind of atmospheric noise that that you and I as hearing people have all the time. And then um, he'll just turn it off. So then you just get this very, very kind of very faint buzz that that Ben's hearing, and and the kind of dislocating effect of that is is really nicely done. And the sound worlds of the two kind of start to merge into each other. The visual, the perhaps this is getting a bit technical, but the 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 visual links between the two, I think, were a bit a bit less subtly done. So it's kind of like. One of them makes a paper boat and sticks it on on a lake, and then it it sort of cuts to a boat, a random boat in in the in other Ben's in the world. other in Ben's world. So they're, they're, he's he's done this kind of you know he's tried to match he's tried to match objects between the two worlds, which kind of um, didn't didn't always work for me. We should say if um, uh, a lot of the action of the film as well, if you could call it action, takes place in the Natural History Museum mm. in Central Park, off off Central Park, um, which uh, both children go to in their own worlds, and they look at the same dioramas and the same meteorites. And 
basically a story develops from that. But that in itself is a it's an odd concept. I mean, it's kind of stubbornly old fashioned in a way to recall a time when the idea of a, you know the, the museum was the epicenter of childlike mm. wonder or something. Yeah. I mean, when you're three years old, you go and see the dinosaurs and they're fascinating, but you don't get children standing in front of stuffed antelopes going, "Wow, yeah. this is amazing." You just don't. I was in that museum a month ago and I was like, "Wow, these look things look like they haven't been changed since the twenties," yeah. which was maybe the point of this uh, of this film. And they're also like. They're also weirdly uncinematic things to put at the centre of your film. And I think he does, he does the best he can to kind of, you know, the title is Wonderstruck. It's, it's the title of a book which is within the story, which is written about... Oh, is Wonderstruck the title of the book? Or is yeah. it? It is, it yeah. is. Yeah, it's a, it's a book about kind of the history of collecting and, and of museums. Cabinets of curiosity. Yeah, exactly. Um, and... Todd Haynes does his best to recreate that scene of wonder. And there, there is a lovely sequence showing the, the Natural History Museum dioramas um, where you get the animals quite up close and you get this kind of interesting like depth of field. So you feel like the wolves really are in the foreground and the, and the kind of snowy background is uh, recedes into the distance. But generally it is quite a tough act to pull off. The other tough act to pull off is how you unpick a very complicated plot using exposition through uh, deaf and speaking people. There's, there's one three-way conversation between someone who's deaf but can't sign, someone who can sign but can't speak, and someone who can do both. But that, for me, that was one of the things that I really liked about it, because once you had submitted to the fact that it was a really, really weird film, <laughs> you, could, you could be patient enough to watch these epic scenes unfold of people writing bits of bits instructions down for each other on paper and showing them a notepad and then you know not wanting to to spoil any plots but there is a long scene at the end where someone has taken a long time to Julianne write something Moore is, 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 she's written 20 pages on a notepad right <laughs> Julianne Moore who's been in uh, in in Todd Haynes's films before in this one uh, imagine if he sort of mainly what you're going to be doing is just is writing in a notepad and someone else is going to read out is that is that okay yeah, yeah, that's great, Todd. Thanks. <laughs> did you remember things like, um, did you ever see Eyes Wide Shut? Uh, I haven't seen that, actually. Or as my friend calls it, Legs Wide Shut. <laughs> um, it, it, it's so slow that yeah. it washes over you once you accept it. And in a way, I can imagine watching this again and again, not expecting an exciting film from it, but just expecting a feeling or something. Mm, yeah. I think his, um, I was thinking about his other films, and, and I haven't seen enough of them, but... Um, Carol, which came out in uh, 2015 or 2016, I, I forget. Um, amazing uh, story um, based on a Patricia Highsmith novel. Um, and Mildred Pierce, which was his version he did for HBO of, um, of a, an older movie starring Joan Crawford. Um, they do have this kind of really, they do share a really nicely kind of controlled visual style. He's tried to do something a lot kind of wilder in this in a way and you know it hasn't all worked but you know it's 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 to be applauded for its its ambition it's also um uh coincidentally or otherwise it really plays into the aesthetic that we all love at the moment which is retro children in stripy t-shirts and corduroys finding weird warps in time and yeah being wonderstruck yeah. because um you know it's got feelings of et it's got mm. lots of feelings of stranger things and both, references to knights at the museum. Yeah, and both the both the child actors are really compelling, aren't they? They both have those. They both just have incredibly compelling faces, 
Um, Bizarre faces. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Little kind of beaten up looking kids. Yeah. Really sort of thoughtful, like thoughtful, but quite sort of cute and appealing as well. Like, yeah. They're... Sort of sulky, but thoughtful. Yeah. 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 Yeah, there's, and I, and I felt that just as, as a kind of segue to our other film as well, yeah. that in both these cases, the, the children have been selected on their very unusual vibes and their unusual faces in, in a quiet place, as we'll go on to discuss. It's not, it's not your classic horror film kids who are like, mommy, daddy, that sort of, you know, perfect all-American family. In the way the adults are much more conventional and mm. it's the children that are strange. And I think that's kind of a, a nice thing that we're seeing at the moment in mm. cinema. We mm. like those weird faces. We like the strange eyebrows and the strange crumply smiles. Mm. And Yeah. So a quiet place. From um, the sublime to the... <laughs> Um, a Quiet Place, uh, directed by John Krasinski, um, who you may know from The American Office. Are you a fan of The American Office? I haven't seen it. Have you not? No. Um, the American Office is, I kind of often recommend The American Office to people because I feel like British people have quite rightly probably an inherent resistance to it because yeah. <laughs> The Office, although everyone... It's it's hard to remember this now that everyone sort of hates Ricky Gervais now. Oh yeah, that's true. The the office was kind of hugely loved and um and and was brilliant um and quite kind of daring. Um and the American office is much kinder, much more American. The the David Brent character is um is quite lovable in a way. But they've they've turned it into a, a kind of a show that can run and run, whereas uh, whereas the the British office had to had to kind of shut itself down quite quickly. But John Krasinski plays um, plays one of the main characters in that. Um, he's been in quite a few films as well and directed a couple of uh, indie films. So this is his first his first major film. And um, in the in the casting process, he he looked far and wide, and um, and found himself and his <laughs> wife. Amazingly, and so he and Emily Blunt star. <laughs> One of my main problems with the film was that I thought, oh, well, that couple's not convincing at all. <laughs> you I didn't know that they, they were a couple. Man and wife. Um, so the premise of this film is a really good premise. Um, it is a uh, an America uh, in which, this is totally really unexplained how any of this happens, um, but um, monsters have taken over and the way these monsters operate is they operate purely on sound. So... If you make a noise, they will get you, basically. They'll suddenly um, appear screaming out of the undergrowth and, and gobble you up. Um, and uh, John Krasinski and, and Emily Blunt um, play this couple. They've got um, three kids um, and she is pregnant with their fourth child. Um, and they're trying to survive. They seem to be the only family that has mm. survived. There's an old man at some point, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. Um, but one of their kids is actually deaf, um, which is where the brilliant um, Millicent Simmons comes in. So this and is basically a family that need to exist by not speaking. speaking. Yeah, yeah. And wearing no shoes. Yeah. And creeping around. And scattering sand everywhere. Do they so, scatter sand? They yeah, did, did you not notice that they, they made pathways in all their fields and stuff by with trails of sand? Um, uh, I guess... That would have a dual function. Um, a, it would make uh, the passage of their feet on the on the sand much more pleasant, and uh, B, it would reduce noise. So yeah, their whole their whole setup is created to uh, to extinguish noise. So John Krasinski um, 
is a sensitive, soulful father, but is also very, very resourceful. Mm. So he's built himself a CCTV station to keep a lookout on the monsters. Um, and he has also kind of adapted their home in um, in various ways to um, to try and soundproof it. He has a kind of elaborate soldering workshop in, yes. in the basement where he's working on hearing aids he's for trying his to make daughter. A hearing aid for his daughter. But at the same time, it's one of those films that you cannot help but pick apart the plot. It just keeps coming up with, hang on, if they're doing that, why aren't they doing that type problems? Uh, so they do indeed have a, a bunker underneath the house which they are kind of in a very rudimentary way papering with newspaper to try and make it soundproof. But yeah. above that, he has his soldering workshop with all his high-tech equipment and he has his satellites and everything like that. So there are scenes where, for instance, you know, lovely ideas like if you if you are near something where the sound is larger, you can make a sound that's smaller yeah. and you won't be heard by these horrible creatures. So yeah. he takes his son to a waterfall yeah. um, and they actually have a proper conversation. It's one of the few conversations in the film. And you can't help but thinking, why don't they just live there? <laughs> Come on. Well, it would they be could a bit live damp. on. <laughs> be fine. Look, she, how would she he has build a baby a C- how would... and puts it in a bucket in a flooded basement. How would he build his CCTV workstation? That's in the, true. <laughs> behind the he couldn't make his hearing aids there. I My real problem with this film was that I really, really like horror as a genre. And the thing I hate about horror is the way it uses sound so cheaply. The, the way of watching a horror film, if you don't want to be frightened, I realised a few years ago is you just plug your ears. Then you can see anything on screen. doesn't matter how horrible it is, you don't get shocks because all they're doing is throwing in extremely loud noises whenever anyone comes around a corner or whenever a hand grabs your arm or anything like that. And I thought, okay, this is a film that's going to look at that problem and subvert it and do something with silence. It doesn't. Every single shock in this film relies on extreme amounts of Dolby surround sound to give you a shock in exactly the same way that all other horror does. Mm. And it was I just thought, what's the point? Like, what's the point of of looking at the idea of silence in a horror film if if you're still gonna have somebody like, you know, grabbing someone's arm and there's this massive jolt and the whole cinema shakes and mm. I just got really pissed off. <laughs> well, I have to say, I I I Kate, I know I know that you are a fan of horror. And this is the first horror film I've I've seen I've watched with you. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of you had your hands in your ears for most That's of it. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> so I so say if you go and watch Halloween from the seventies, so silent. Right. Amazing John Carpenter music. Yeah. Basically long shots of someone walking really yeah. slowly. And 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 dark and weird and, and just like it's all about the, the the fright is there in the in yeah. the storyline, whereas in this, I mean, I didn't care whether Emily Blunt got eaten. That's so harsh. I have to say, I'm really, you know, Farmer Blunt when she appears in her uh, <laughs> in her denim dungarees. You know, she's a great she's a great mom. Um, actually, I, I thought she I thought she was alright actually, and um, um, I agree with you that they they didn't, perhaps didn't manage to communicate their real life um, chemistry as well as they could have done despite sharing a, an iPod listening to Harvest Moon and sort of shuffling around, sort of vaguely encircling her bump, <laughs> which is, you know, we've all done it. Um, but um, no, I agree with you. And, and I think the, um, the, it was a bit of a missed opportunity with the sound in general because, um, you know, what he decided to do in the end was actually even though I didn't mind the kind of shock, the horror shock sound effects as much as you did, what, <laughs> what did annoy me was the fact that in the bits where we weren't having our shocks, we had um, just soupy strings the whole time. Yeah. So so there wasn't really, for, for a film that 
for a film that trades in silence, there was very, very little silence. And I just read an interview where this was put to him and he basically, he said... Um, Did you say whoops? <laughs> he said, oh yeah, good point. Um, <laughs> he said that he he didn't want to, he wanted the audience to feel like they were in a familiar film world. It's basically, it's, this, it's the same with a lot of, it's the same mm. why a lot of um, Hollywood films are overscored. They're just nervous of the audience getting uncomfortable and, um, you know, coming out of themselves and thinking about the fact they're sitting in a cinema watching a film. Um, so the brave, the braver thing to do would, would, would have been to strip out some of this sound mm. and, to, and to kind of explore, explore the idea of silence. Um, but other, they didn't go down that road. My other problem with them is always, um, again, you can get such a great concept for a film and then the actual um, uh, evil force, the alien, is just literally pulled out of a prop cupboard and it's been in a million other films. So you had here the sort of these strange creatures that had highly developed hearing and no eyes, but loads and loads of layers of teeth, just like the ones we've seen in, in Stranger Things and Alien. Um, weird stock sound that they all make, which you just feel has been just taken off some CD that's been knocking around for 30 years in horror, where they kind of, they make a dinosaur type roar and then mm. they shriek at the same time and then mm. there's a loud thud and stuff. Mm. And I just, I always think, like, why do they stop creatively at the point where they invent the beast? Why don't they do something that looks different? Why are they always these scaly kind of, um, I mean, my my interest goes immediately this, <laughs> as soon as I see that it's some like weird scaly alien thing with mm. loads of teeth. I think that that's... could have been humans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is quite rare to see. You're right. It is quite rare to see a genuinely original and scary monster. I mean, the ones I think of are like um, the one I always think of is the one in Pan's Labyrinth, yeah. where he's got eyes in the palm palm of his hand. Yeah, that's one of the most terrifying monsters I think I've ever seen. Um, in um, our colleague Helen Helen Lewis's uh, uh, piece recently on on Annihilation, and we, that's the film we talked about. Um, I talked about with Helen and on the last podcast. She's talking to Adam Rutherford, who's a who's a sort of science consultant on lots of films, and he says that directors often come to him and say, like, "Make me an alien I'd never seen before." And he basically he basically said to counter your uh, complaint there, <laughs> he basically said you can't because <gasps> everything's mm. been everything's been sort of done before, and you can't really come up with a new with a new alien. Wow. But, um, I'll never forget my disappointment in Jeepers Creepers, which is a great horror film, when this thing that you think is just a, a redneck guy with a gun ends up like a scaly leg comes out the bottom of his trousers and then some wings emerge and says, oh, okay, you know, it's one of those films. And so many people I've spoken to got the same deep disappointment when the alien came out of the man's costume. <laughs> people uh, love it though you've ruined jeepers creepers for me now. I've, uh, that's been on my list for so long and now now i'm not going to bother um i think the, the the aliens do have one cool feature which is the kind of expanding um like whirl like ear earpiece um and i think the strengths of the film are it's kind of focused very tightly on its premise so it's quite a kind of it's quite tightly made in a way, mm. isn't it? It's not baggy. It's 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 focused, um, and um, the set pieces. I think, uh, despite the complaint about the sound, the set pieces are <laughs> well done. You know, like the, the the there's a there's a scene with a with a nail, uh, and they you know they take a small they take a kind of small tightly focused object or, or 
dangerous situation and, and, and make a lot of it. There's a, there's a, there's a birth scene, which I'm not going to describe, um, but it does. Farmer, have, Farmer Blunt does well. It, it, Farmer Blunt does well. She gets, she gets a gold, gold star and all the, um, all the NCT sessions really, really worked out for her. Um, I like the, um, the sort of return in, in this, in your, also in Interstellar, you had it sort of a dust bowl feeling mm. to this post-apocalyptic yes. or post-aggressed world because you got endless wheat fields it's a very fecund kind of landscape yeah. but there's no one on it there's mm. no one to to tend it and you've got a family in shoes with rolled up trousers and a lovely kind of attention to um the kind of clothes that you would with the exception of farmer blunt's dungarees the kind of clothes that you would wear if you didn't really have any clothes i love yeah. the fact that millicent simmons wears you know she's wearing sort of leggings under skirts and sort of strange wetsuit top like thrown yeah. on top and they're just that great feeling of, yeah, this is actually how a family would look if they had to start again and constantly be moving on as well. Um, yeah, you're right. And often in these kind of slightly um, post-apocalyptic setups, the, the landscape is barren and blasted. And so it's nice It's nice that, that um, it's a nice contrast to the sort yeah. of terror of their situation that actually they don't, it's not a problem that they, you know, they're not struggling for food or no. anything. It's all. I wonder who's farming it's though. All there. Well, I wondered if they were supposed to be farmers previously because mm. I don't. I there don't was a know, tractor. They, yeah, um, that's another little kind of plot hole is that they they can't wear shoes but they can drive cars. <laughs> no, they only drive the car once. I think <laughs> in a situation of high high danger. Um, I think it's um, if 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 we're asked what it's about because I think it is a film that aspires to having a little bit of a, a meaning. Um, I think it's probably the sort of the terror of parenthood and mm. the key line, you know, the, the, the script isn't, isn't amazing, but um, the key line I think is, uh, is comes from Farmer Blunt. She says, who are we if we can't protect them? Yeah. Um, so it's kind of, it's kind of about the, the terror of, uh, of being responsible for, for children and having to protect mm. them from. So from that the again, it's world. very tight. It's very, um, it's a small focus in a way, isn't yeah. it? The same way you never find out why this has happened and what's happened to this world, really. Um, Krasinski did uh, say that um, th there's another resonance to the to the theme of the movie. He said, I think in our political situation that what's going on now, you can close your eyes and stick your head in the sand or you can try to participate in whatever's going on. Oh, oh. Which I thought was a bit <laughs> less convincing. <laughs> You've sort of made that up afterwards, haven't you? That it's about it's about, it's about silence <laughs> and and putting your head in the sand and Trump. Mm. I wasn't I wasn't so convinced by that. No. And also, I wasn't. Uh, you know, I'm sure I would have done no better, but I wasn't convinced by his action man running through cornfields. Um, I, I thought a lot of the yeah the um the the family setup was was very sort of unreconstructed. Mm. Um, and I kind of like that about it because I was wondering whether it's sort of making a point about roles in that sense, you know, because he that's you know I'm not gonna spot the plot, but you do yeah. see his his fallibility. Yeah. Um but yeah he's very quickly stepped into this kind of American dad role and Millicent Simmons has to stay at home and prepare the fish while the boy goes out with him and stuff. Yeah. But those 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 roles are questioned all mm. the way through. So I think it is quite sort of um ad advanced in that sense. But it just looks at first like your your bog standard American horror setup. Yeah. Um, just very briefly, uh, the one thing these these the other thing these two films have in, in common is just how good the child actors are. And we talked a bit about um, Millicent Simmons already, but they're really like put through their paces because they're basically 
they're whole scenes where they just have to emote, furiously emote, you know. But maybe that's, um, yeah, maybe the reason for that is actually that as we get older, we become much more self-conscious about using yeah. our facial muscles yeah. and children are just much more rubbery and expressive. But the young kid who's who's genuinely terrified, I found totally convincing. Like he really was, um, he really was utterly kind of frozen with fear. Whereas there were points where I sort of thought that Emily Blunt's face looked like she was trying not to laugh. <laughs> And I know that's not true, but I, it sort of made me laugh because it was something very poised about it, you know, very graceful and very poised. Was that when she she did have a few light? She had she had a couple of light moments. She took she had a scene where she was teaching her son long division, and she did a toothless granny impression, yeah, which was great. Yeah, yeah. 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 So that's not... my favourite bit. So both both these films are on release now, I think, um, mm, and on um, Friday, I think. I think. Uh, I realise it's highly unlikely, but I do think they make quite a good uh, du- mm. double bill. I don't think we'll be seeing them as a double bill in any cinemas at any time soon. In, in <laughs> my cinema, I will show them as a double bill. <laughs> so, Tom, after a, a lot of research, we've found another non-anniversary, which is our non-specific, unimportant, cultural marker. What do we have this week? Well, uh, this week it's 27 years since uh, Do the Bartman, the Simpsons spin-off single, spent its 12th and last week in the uh, UK Top 100 music chart. So it's the, the, the very last week. So it disappeared it, after this point 27 yeah. years so ago. So it's 12 weeks in the chart, um, two or three weeks at, at number one. And, um, well, you must remember it, do you? I did have it. Yeah. You bought on, it. on the disc. Yeah. On a, on a, on a vinyl. On a vinyl a disc. Waxing. Wow. What about you? I don't think I owned it, but it was always present at kind of birthday parties and um, and at friends' houses and the cassette and the um, and the album later, uh, Simpson Sing the Blues that it was included on. Listening to it again, it's it's actually sort of not too annoying. It's kind of it, I think it might be one of the few sort of novelty songs I can think of that is actually vaguely listenable. I wondered if I had the right song because I was looking through YouTube and yeah. I think I had the right song, but it was basically. A kind of slick, sophisticated rap yeah, song without yeah. much of a tune. Yeah. And some good harmonies by Michael Jackson and in the background. And some nice slidey bass in there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a very kind of sophisticated piece of music. It's an extremely sophisticated piece of music, Kate. Um, <laughs> and there's a bit of an argument about um, who's responsible for the music because um, uh, the songwriter is uh, Brian Lauren, who y- who you know of. I didn't I didn't know of Brian him. the Wiz Hudson. I don't know of him. I right. just found out okay. about him. Oh, I thought you were like... A big fan. I thought he was a kind of um, <laughs> Bruce no. Hornsby type character no. <laughs> in your life. No, but it enabled us to have a debate very quickly because you said, you know, it's believed that Michael Jackson actually wrote this song. I said, no, it's it was Brian the Wizards. <laughs> so Jackson did get in touch with the show offering to write a song and, and apparently um, came up with the title. Um, but then, how much he actually, how much he actually contributed beyond the title and doing the backing vocals mm. is 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 up for debate. Brian Loren said that he just did the backing vocals, gave him the title, and said that the song had to mention Michael Jackson, which it does. Amazing, which it does. <laughs> and it also has some, a, a quite a cool um, sort of Jackson-inspired dance routine uh, towards the end. It's just a um, nostalgic. Um, snapshot of the very early Simpsons isn't it where where actually Bart was the naughty boy and it was all about him and Marge and Homer hadn't necessarily emerged to be 
the complex characters they now are. <laughs> so then it was like Bart's putting mothballs in their soup and everyone's annoyed at the naughty boys. That's so. the line I really remembered, putting mothballs in the meat stew. I mean, like, I just thought that was ball? really funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious, the height of wit. Yeah, it didn't have any of that kind of existential... No. Uh, um, I guess it was before like Homer's sayings were on coasters and bumper stickers <laughs> and T-shirts. Because it was that. only two years old, wasn't it, the programme? Yeah, so the, was... so the programme started in 89 and this um, they released the single in, in 1990 um, and it came into the UK chart in 91. It does have some of the, the wit of The Simpsons, like the video opens with a really staid school uh, performance where they're doing this kind of, the kids are doing this awful sort of choreographed uh, dance and the they're announced with and and now for a group that needs no introduction your children <laughs> to, all, to all the parents i had a plastic bart that which i which i just remembered i bought off the back of this song so i had like a kind of it had a soft butt with you know soft butt and then really hard head with the plastic hair and i just remember how much it hurt when my brother hit my head <laughs> with bart's head because it had this it was like a meat tenderizer yes. that's what it was like it's really hard so my that's my memory of this song <laughs> Please write in with your um, pictures of your Simpsons memorabilia. I wonder if any of them are worth anything now. Probably not. That's probably so mass produced. Thank you for downloading this episode of The Back Half. Do go on iTunes and review us and rate us and get in touch and send us non-aversary suggestions. The current issue of The New Statesman contains a review by Ryan Gilby of Wonderstruck, one of the films we've been talking about today. It's also got a great Spring Books special with lots of, uh, lots of reviews in there. We have been edited by Caroline Crampton and we're going to leave you with... Our house band... Pistol Jazz and their song Godspeed. to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.